This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 4th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And today is part two of our look back and look forward. And I'd like to start today with vaccines. The introduction of vaccines has turned out to be a game changer. That being said, we obviously still have an ongoing pandemic that's quite severe in much of the world. What have we learned that could help increase the impact of the vaccines that we have and to deal with potential epidemics in the future? Steve, let me start by looking back and just have to acknowledge once again, as we have so many times, how amazing it was that these vaccines were developed so rapidly. It's important to remember that there really wasn't a precedent for this pace of development of new agents. And that was amazing. And that was a testament to the basic scientists who rapidly did the work to the clinicians, basic scientists, and of course, the participants of studies who got things going very quickly, and the regulators who came up with a regulatory pathway to get to an emergency use authorization so quickly. Now, of course, this was based on a lot of things that had occurred before. And I want to emphasize the infrastructure that enabled us to be where we were. And that infrastructure was in a few places. In basic science, the idea of using an adenovirus or an mRNA as a vaccine had been around for a long time and had been worked on heavily in other diseases. And the fact that there was that investment in basic science that had already occurred was critical to getting this done so quickly. And on the clinical side, much of the work that had gone into developing the teams involved came from HIV, where there were large groups of clinical investigators that were already organized and focused on an infectious disease problem. So it illustrates the fact that we need to make long-term investments, not just short-term investments, to get to where we want to so quickly. Eric, I agree. It's a remarkable public-private partnership that was able to be initiated and executed in remarkable time because there were structures in place. And it allowed rigorous trials to be conducted rapidly with two vaccines receiving EUA authorization in under a year. And I think that is remarkable. And we should continue to make those investments as we see the value of them through this last year's emergence of vaccines that can really attenuate this pathogen. And I think there are a couple of important concepts to highlight in addition. This shows us what can be done quickly with rigorous science if we put our mind to it as a society. And we need to not say it was exceptional, but learn from it to determine how we can do it faster for the so many other diseases that need effective treatments. We need to appreciate how globally connected we are. A pathogen emerges in one part of the world, it can threaten the entire world and the availability of sequences of the pathogen in early January 2020 allowed a variety of scientific endeavors to immediately launch in January, saving time. And we need to appreciate some of the frustrations we have in that the vaccines have been developed, but we don't have them to scale for the global need and that we need to think about the full investment through to delivery to those who can benefit. So manufacturing capacity and delivery capacity to all parts of the world 
Uh, SARS-CoV-2 continues to remind us of how connected we are. And if it's out of control in one part of the world, it can impact the rest of the world. So we have to continue to enhance our response with this view in mind through all of the steps in the process. Well, that brings up the problem of both manufacturing and distribution, where there is still a great need to expand our ability to make vaccine and our ability to get vaccine to the people who need it. And this is another sort of infrastructure problem. Of course, no one had made mRNA vaccines or adenoviral vaccines at this sort of scale before. So there is the scientific question and engineering question of how do you scale up to this sort of capacity? And that continues to be evolving, I think. But there's simply the matter of having the plants and the chemistry and in the case of adenovirus, the fermenter capacity in order to make all of this material. So this is another kind of long-term investment. If we're going to be able to respond quickly to something, we have to have not only the scientific research and development capacity and the clinical capacity for testing, but we have to have the downstream manufacturing capacity and be able to sustain that over time. Couldn't agree more. And I think we also need to continue to realize that the pathogens are not passive. And we need to plan, sadly, for the next pandemic, because it's not if, it's when. But we also need to realize in the current pandemic that this virus is continuing to evolve. And therefore, the science in the response needs to also be equally nimble. And so that requires the flexibility in all of the elements that you just described to be able to pivot to how this pathogen is misbehaving and causing trouble. One of the good things with respect to that, Lindsay, that have come out are the new technologies of adenoviral vectors and mRNA vaccines that have been so successful in this because they're not only simpler in some ways and faster from the bench to bedside in many ways, but they're incredibly flexible. It's relatively easy to make new antigens and put them in. That flexibility means that these technologies are going to be applied to many existing diseases. But it also means that we have a more rapid path to developing a vaccine next time around when there's a pandemic, because a lot of the issues around safety, around manufacturing have been sorted out. And I think that it will enable us to respond more rapidly. And I think what's critical to that, Eric, is we pay attention during the inter-pandemic period to continue to invest so that we are well prepared when a pathogen or pandemic emerges. And unfortunately, we all have a short memory due to all of the health problems and other issues that we have to address across society. But we should not forget that this type of investment, even a small investment, can rapidly speed a response the next time we're challenged. I wonder if I can raise another issue around vaccination and being prepared to deliver vaccines to people. And that's thinking through the ethics of vaccination. One of the biggest problems we have right now is that we have heavily vaccinated parts of the world, which are generally the more wealthy parts of the world, and largely unvaccinated parts of the world, which are the poorer parts of the world. And as we have said many times, 
vaccinating some people and ignoring others not only isn't particularly ethical, but it also puts everyone at risk because the new variants we're seeing, the Delta virus, which is now spreading even among vaccinated people, represent a threat that comes from the unvaccinated population. So we're not doing a service to the people who aren't getting vaccines, and we're not doing a service to ourselves by not getting those vaccines to people. So I think that's something that we want to think about in advance, rather than just having the wealthy countries corner the market on vaccines. They have to be thinking more broadly, how does everyone benefit when some critical reagent like a vaccine is developed? I mean, Eric, you highlight several important issues embedded in those concepts. I think the issue of global equity, as well as self-interest, are wrapped into the ability to go to scale with the vaccines and deliver it to everyone on the planet. It's the right thing to do, and it also is the right way to control the pandemic. There also is an issue in the unvaccinated, in those who are hesitant and suspect of the vaccines. And there we need to have a different kind of strategy in terms of education and community engagement to be able to help those who are uncertain about the benefits of vaccination and the safety of vaccination to understand those issues fully. Because I think this pandemic and its response has shed light on the many different reasons why people don't access vaccination. And we need to think about that quite seriously as we try to get the right information to the right communities. So speaking of information, one of the biggest challenges throughout the epidemic has been in communications, both to the general public and to practitioners. What have we done right and what remains problematic? Steve, I think we should start off by being self-critical. What about us as a traditional medical journal? How have we performed in this? It's been difficult for journals like ours to adapt because there's been an overwhelming amount of information submitted to us. And we've had to try to publish things on very short timelines. And we haven't really been set up to do that. Having said that, I think we've done pretty well. We've published some material that hasn't held up. And we've occasionally let some hype get through. But I think for the most part, we've overall done a pretty good job of balancing the need for speed with the need to get the story right. But speed is very problematic for us. Um, I think that we still have a very traditional model and a model that works where we get everything peer reviewed and we edit it very heavily. And that takes a lot of time. It also puts big demands on our staff and on our peer reviewers. And remember that our peer reviewers are not just experts, but they're experts who are themselves dealing with the crisis. They are often infectious disease people who are setting policy and caring for patients and involved in research. And therefore, we are asking a lot when we ask them to devote even more time to think carefully about a manuscript that's been submitted to us. We're really greatly indebted to our reviewers. And I personally am very indebted to our editors and our staff who've really worked so hard. But while I think we've done well, we're still pretty slow. We've been able to get some things out rapidly, but I can tell you that today we still have a huge backlog of very interesting things that we want to get out there, both COVID-related and covering other parts of medicine. So I think we still need to 
think about how to balance our ability to ensure that what we publish is correct with our ability to get it out there quickly. So, Eric, in thinking about how we as a journal and we as a scientific community, as a clinical community, communicated in the last year with the emergence of this pandemic, you're absolutely right. It's been incredibly challenging. And part of that challenging elements include the speed of the pandemic and the change in technology with how we communicate. And that has created a real challenge with balancing timeliness of information when one is faced with incredible uncertainty and completeness and how to continually improve our understanding of the facts of what's going on to allow thoughtful people to make the best decisions for themselves and their patients. And in some ways we've adapted to this process and other ways we have a lot to learn as a journal and as a community. I think that going forward, really understanding the technology and how people get information is going to be central to being successful in this space. It's not as if everyone gets information the same way. I suspect some of our younger readers may access scientific information a little bit differently than some of our older readers, for example, given how they've developed their habits of accessing new advances. And this is something we have to be sensitive to as we try to communicate with all the different communities. How to make sure we get it right, which is what's so important for all of us, while sharing the information quickly, is forever going to be an incredible challenge for us in our community, especially as we look at the information changing so quickly. As you mentioned, Delta is spreading rapidly. That was not an issue a month ago. And that becomes a new issue that we have to think about very carefully in understanding the biology and then being able to communicate that in a thoughtful and balanced way. So I see this as a ongoing iterative process. I hope that we continue to stay responsive to our community and leverage the latest communication modalities to be most effective. Lindsay, I started us off talking about our role as a medical journal in communications, but Steve, I know the question was more general. So what about the mainstream media? Um, the mainstream media, I think, have faced in some ways a more significant challenge than we have. They have reporters with some expertise, but not all reporters are experts in the topics. And in fact, a lot of especially newspapers that have to report on a daily basis have moved a lot of general assignment reporters to covering these medical and health issues. And that is challenging. The amount of information they've had to process and had to evaluate is overwhelming. And there's a tremendous thirst for knowledge among the public so that there's a pressure to publishing every day, even when there's less news actually out there. That being said, I think that a lot of our traditional media have done quite well. And I don't often see on television, in newspapers, statements that just aren't right. But when we say mainstream media, we're talking about a spectrum. And I think there is a spectrum in how carefully people have edited material and how much of a slant they tend to put on it. Of course, media extend all the way to social media, and social media have been all over the place. And right now we're in this funny position and many people more expert have commented on the fact that you can essentially find the news that you want out there 
and find the viewpoint that you want. So in this day of fragmented news, it is difficult, I think, for people to establish what's real oftentimes. So Eric, I agree that how we communicate as a community is radically different. And the internet and social media has dramatically changed the ability for everyone to have access to information they seek. I think a real challenge as we go forward in improving health is enabling these different communication platforms such as social media to have self-correcting processes so that non-facts are rooted out and facts are able to be established. We can differ on our opinion of facts, but if we don't agree that the sun rises in the east and the earth is round, it is very difficult to have conversations about how to improve how we coexist on this planet. So we need to be able to establish what's a fact, have social media and communication platforms share those facts, and then have the lively debate as to what do they mean and what do we do with them. And I hope that one of the lessons we do learn from the last year and a half is that misinformation, even with good intentions, although it's not always with good intentions, can be very undermining in terms of communicating what is going on and allowing the community to find the best path forward. So I hope a self-correcting function does emerge for all of these different platforms to get it a little bit closer to what the facts are. The one place where people can turn for authoritative information should be the government. And here's where I would reserve my harshest criticism. That's for some of the political leaders around the globe. They remember have access to the best quality information and they have the obligation to lead during a crisis. But in a shocking number of countries, politicians have seen the crisis as an opportunity to create controversies that don't exist. There is no controversy as to whether or not masks work. There is no controversy as to whether or not vaccines work. But these are turned into odd political issues. And there's been a real lack of will to make difficult decisions. And those have had consequences. Millions of people have died because governments have failed to make decisions or have made poor decisions despite the evidence right in front of them. It'll be interesting to see if there's much political cost to some of these individuals or if memories are going to be short. I mean, I think, Eric, you highlight that politics and science should not mix. However, it's not our decision for that. And I think that in reporting on politics and science, we in the medical publishing and the broader mainstream media need to think carefully about how they portray things. I agree that many politicians have used this as an opportunity to cloud the information for other agendas, and that's unconscionable. I think we in the broader media landscape need to think about how we report that. As I continue to hear red states and blue states like vaccines, don't like vaccines, support masks, don't support masks. I find that as further entrenching the narrative of one political party versus another. This is a scientific health issue. It is not a political issue. And we as a community need to look at it as a scientific issue. And the politics should stay separate. I hope going forward that we can further minimize the polarization of the science through the politics 
because that is unhelpful for everyone involved. I've been framing my questions as if this were a post-mortem. In fact, though, as you're pointing out, we're still in the midst of the pandemic. We're looking at the Delta variant. We still have many cases of disease in the U.S., and we have many deaths around the world. Where, though, do you see areas of hope? I think there are a lot of reasons for hope right now. First off, vaccines may not be as effective as we'd hoped earlier on, but they're still highly, highly effective. They may not be as good at preventing infection by some variants, but they're certainly good at preventing severe disease caused by the variants we have so far. And the ability to change those vaccines to very quickly alter the antigens that are included so that they can cover a broader range or a new variant is so easy right now to make these changes that I think we have the opportunity to make responses in a much more timely fashion. On top of that, we may be heading toward booster doses of vaccines, and the at least early evidence suggests that there's a much better immune response to those. So vaccines were our ticket out of the epidemic, and I think they remain so. The enormous challenge is one that Lindsay referred to before, which is we have to A, get vaccines to people, and B, convince them to take them once they're there. So I think that remains a problem. So Steve, I think that though this past 18 months has been devastating, I see a lot of hope in what has been accomplished. Defining the pathogen, defining the disease pathogenesis, developing diagnostics, rapid diagnostics, developing a multitude of treatments, both for the virus and the aberrant host response, developing a variety of prevention strategies that work. And I call them strategies because even though vaccines are incredibly potent, they're part of a multi-tiered approach that include case identification, isolation, quarantine, testing, masks, hand washing, social etiquette, vaccines as just some of the multi-tiered approach. And what we see by these many different elements that have been developed with different levels of scientific rigor, but together have allowed massive control in many countries where they were applied rigorously, show us many opportunities to make a big difference on the transmission of SARS-CoV-2, but also techniques about how to handle respiratory viruses and other pathogens in the future. And as Eric mentioned, there are many things that we can improve in anticipation of the next pandemic, such as manufacturing, supply chain, as well as the scientific community ready to respond. So I think it's been an incredibly difficult year, but it's also been an incredibly hopeful year given what has been accomplished and the road it has paved for what we can do if we plan and work together. Lindsay, I doubled down on what you said. I think that vaccines are the way out. However, we know of many effective measures for preventing transmission of disease. We've talked about them over and over again, and they're simple. They involve social distancing and masking, et cetera. It's difficult to look at these measures at this point and say, we're moving backward. We have to start doing some of the things that we've done before. But there is no saying at any point that this was going to be a one and done. We have the miracle intervention and it goes away. Remember the miracle intervention. If we'd been able to vaccinate everyone in the world on the same day, we probably would be out of this. 
that couldn't happen, that didn't happen. And so now we do have to use some of the other measures that have proven so effective in the past. So I don't think that it's a failure to have to turn back to some of these things. It is a failure, however, to get COVID-19 and to die of COVID-19 while these measures exist, while waiting for the more effective vaccine for the extra doses or for whatever comes in the future. So I think it's incredibly important for physicians to be telling their patients that they can be protected against disease fairly effectively right now with the measures that we have already in our pockets. I'm also hopeful that we've learned how to communicate a little bit better, both in terms of determining what does work and is effective, and also how do we communicate that to our broad communities. And we at the Journal have done things differently. I think the larger global community has done things differently in how they communicate, some of which has been irresponsible, as we commented on, but overall, our ability to communicate widely and effectively is a real opportunity to affect change more rapidly. And so I'm very hopeful just on the communication front, a lot can be done better and more effectively, although much work needs to be done. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Eric.